1: I'm Steve Kerwood. The major presidential candidates say they all want to cap greenhouse gases and trade carbon credits to fight climate change, so where's the difference?
2: All polluters will have to pay based on the amount of pollution they release into the sky. The market will set the price, but unlike other cap and trade proposals that have been offered in this race, no business will be allowed to emit any greenhouse gases for free
1: fine distinctions and perhaps some flip-flops on the rocky path to the White House. Also, how the cap-and-trade law in California is running into calls for a carbon tax, as unpopular as that might be.
3: We've got to move beyond questions about whether or not it's politically viable. The fundamental question is, will it save
4: the planet?
1: And walking the Gobi Desert and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
4: Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm.
1: From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With John McCain the likely Republican nominee to face either Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama, the fall's presidential matchup is beginning to take shape. And the candidates are starting to take a few shots at one another's plans to address global warming. All three favor capping carbon emissions, but the candidates are already looking for ways to draw distinctions and show voters that theirs is the best approach to tackle climate change. Living on Earth, Jeff Young has the story.
0: A little over a year ago, in January of 07, U.S. senators packed the Environment Committee room to share ideas on climate change. It so happened that Senators John McCain of Arizona and Barack Obama of Illinois spoke back-to-back. Obama heaped praise on his Republican colleague, who, along with Connecticut's Joe Lieberman, had proposed the first climate change bill. I
5: believe that the right approach uh, begins with the proposal put forward by Senator Lieberman and Senator McCain, a proposal that they've been pushing for years, and I thank them again for their leadership on this issue. It's a framework that's not only good for the environment, it's also good for business.
0: Obama liked McCain's Climate Stewardship Act. The act proposed what's known as a cap-and-trade approach. Set a mandatory ceiling on overall emissions of CO2, then allow companies to buy and sell permits for those emissions. Obama and New York Senator Hillary Clinton liked the bill so much, they joined McCain as co-sponsors. What a difference a year makes. Now Obama sees McCain as his likely rival in the race for the White House— and he sees big problems with McCain's climate plan. Obama told reporters at a campaign event in Seattle this month that his plan is better.
2: All polluters will have to pay based on the amount of pollution they release into the sky. The market will set the price, but unlike other cap-and-trade proposals that have been offered in this race, no business will be allowed to emit any greenhouse gases for free. Businesses don't own the sky, the
0: public does. Obama says under McCain's proposal, many companies would receive free emissions permits, while his plan calls for an auction of all permits. The money raised would go toward clean energy, increasing efficiency and helping people with low incomes pay heating bills. Senator Clinton's plan has similar elements, and both Democratic candidates aim for steeper reductions in greenhouse gas emissions than Senator McCain does. But McCain's supporters say a candidate's plan is not as important as the candidate's record. Dave Jenkins is with the group Republicans for Environmental Protection, which has endorsed McCain.
5: You can have all the plans in the world, but if you don't exercise leadership, it doesn't really do you much good. McCain has been doing the legwork to move this issue forward. The other candidates, Senator Clinton and Senator Obama, they've articulated a good position. They've signed on to some bills. They've come up with a
0: plan but they haven't exercised leadership, and that's where the distinction is. But some of McCain's recent comments on climate change raised some eyebrows. During last month's debate in Florida, hosted by MSNBC, moderator Tim Russert asked McCain about his plan.
6: Senator McCain, you are in favor of mandatory caps. No, I'm in favor of cap and trade. And all we are saying is, look, if you can reduce your greenhouse gas emissions, you you earn a credit. Somebody else is gonna increase theirs, you can sell it to
0: them. And meanwhile, we have a gradual reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. That answer puzzled many climate policy observers. McCain had explained the trade part of his plan well, but the cap part is, by any definition, mandatory, a limit set by law. In an interview this month, George Stephanopoulos of ABC asked McCain much the same question Russert had. How about on the issue of climate change? Mm-hmm. Because you and Senator Lieberman have come out for a bill which would have mandatory... Uh, reductions in greenhouse gas. reductions, yes. But they are mandatory. Are you sticking yeah. by that? So why does McCain now say yes to mandatory caps when he said no in Florida? Again, Dave Jenkins of Republicans for Environmental Protection.
5: Well, I don't think there's two different answers. I think in the Florida debate, what he was simply doing was drawing a distinction to the, with the audience that he's not in favor of just a simple mandatory cap on carbon emissions, but he's in favor of a more market-friendly cap-and-trade system A hard cap without that market aspect uh, would be a very different thing and probably have a very different appeal to the Republican primary voter.
0: Out on the campaign trail, Hillary Clinton has been using her global warming plan as a way to talk not just about the environment, but the economy. Here's Clinton on the stump in Youngstown, Ohio. One of
3: us has a plan to revive our economy right now by creating millions of new clean energy jobs green-collar jobs, five million of them. Jobs we'll create by investing oil companies' record profits in clean, renewable energy.
0: All the candidates have talked about clean energy jobs, but Clinton has been hammering the point the hardest. And that's likely because her strongest voter base has been working-class Democrats who are very concerned about the economy. A glance at the primary election calendar shows that will be especially important in the coming weeks. Clinton looks for a comeback in Ohio, Texas, and Pennsylvania, where she hopes blue-collar voters will respond to her plan for green-collar jobs. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington.
1: The Nonpartisan League of Conservation Voters just released its latest scorecard and found all three candidates missed some key votes on the environment. Senators Clinton and Obama missed four votes the Conservation League tracked, Senator McCain missed all 15 votes. You can find all of our coverage of the presidential candidates on the web at loe.org. Scientists from Los Alamos National Laboratory believe they can solve two global problems with one electrochemical solution. The researchers have come up with a new concept that they say can turn greenhouse gases in the air into gasoline for our cars. William Kubik and F. Jeffrey Martin have dubbed their idea Green Freedom. Dr. Martin joins me now. You say the first step requires capturing huge amounts of carbon dioxide, but how?
5: Well, we absorb it out of the air using very large cooling towers, And uh, once we absorb it, then now we have the uh, perfect ingredient for making gasoline.
1: When you capture the CO2, you put it in a potassium carbonate solution? That's right. So uh, now you capture the CO2 in the cooling tower. What happens next? Now it's stuck in, in
5: solution. And so the trick is to get it back out of solution. And so you use an electrolytic process to liberate the CO2 out of the, out of the solution. So now you have a pure CO2 gas. It's done in two steps. You can make uh, methanol by taking it up to high temperatures and pressures and under a catalytic process, then you dehydrate it. Uh, Second step, you do the same thing. You take it up to high temperatures and pressures and dehydrate it some more, and then you end up with gasoline that you can use in your car. You must be very excited about this. This is great. This is great because uh, it doesn't have... uh, many, if any, uh, downsides to it. it, and it tends to solve all of the problems instead of just moving the problem to another place.
1: This takes a lot of energy, but as I understand it, you've developed a process that takes comparatively less energy.
5: Yes. The roadblock that's always been there before is the amount of energy that's re- required to get very dilute amounts of CO2 or carbon dioxide out of solution once it's been captured.
1: Well, we've been able to lower that by 97%. It's got to take still a vast amount of energy to do this process. Where do you get that energy? Well, we can get it from nuclear power.
5: We can get it from wind. We can get it from geothermal. We can get it from solar. The most available one would be nuclear power in terms of being able to crank up the amount of, of energy uh, to do this. But if other sources of electricity become more economical,
1: we can use them as well. How many nuclear power plants would we need to, say, get all of our gasoline from your process?
5: Well, um, we being the United States, yes, uh, about 500 do get all of it.
1: That's a lot of power.
5: It is, but we consume a lot of power. That's the magnitude of what we do in this country. A more modest goal would be just to stabilize the U.S. domestic production, and in other words, make up for the loss of production we see now every year. And that would be nine plants per year. Uh, right now, each plant would generate about six cubic meters of uh, nuclear waste, and uh, we have to um, get a process for a disposal of that, which has not been solved up to this point in time.
1: If the government officials were to come to you now and say, okay, this is a terrific idea, we'd like to build this out, how much would it cost?
5: Well, the cost of a full demonstration plant, the one that's producing at full capacity, would be about $5.2 billion. And we're talking about 750,000 gallons uh, a day, and that would take care of a small city. So what's the nut
1: you have to crack now?
5: Technically, uh, it's going to be very straightforward, just getting public acceptance and getting investment into the concept. We see this thing as, as low risk, and if anything, uh, in the future with new technology, the cost of the risk will will reduce even further.
1: So let's fast forward now. Uh, you go through this these several steps, and you come out with a gallon of gasoline. mm mm-hmm. What would that cost?
5: Um, Right now, our best estimate is $5 a gallon. This is at the pump, fully burdened with taxes.
1: Now, you say that your work has taken this from speculation to a viable concept. What what happens next? What happens now?
5: Oh, well, right now we're going to demonstrate the technology, and that will take about another year. And then we expect um, in about five years that the technology will now be available
1: for uh, commercialization. Dr. F. Jeffrey Martin is Senior Advisor at Los Alamos National Laboratory and co-creator of the Green Freedom Concept. The other day, we got a letter from a listener who asked us to stop using the phrase global warming and say climate change instead. The warming of the Earth, she notes, could lead to a slowdown of the Gulf Stream, and that would actually make parts of the east coast of North America and the west coast of Europe much colder. We'd like to agree, but the phrase climate change has problems as well. For one thing, it doesn't convey whether such changes are good or bad. And in my view, underplaying the perils of climate change is an exercise in denial and irresponsible journalism. Woods Hole Research Center director John Holdren proposes climate disruption, which seems more accurate. In fact, the climate is getting put so far out of whack that Rocky Mountain Institute co-founder Hunter Lovins suggests we call it global weirding. But since human activities have tipped the balance and given our planet a fever, how about a phrase that has us taking some responsibility, although human-induced global catastrophe doesn't exactly roll off the tongue? What do you think? Email us. The address is comments at LOE.org or call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's LOE.org or 800-218-9988. Just ahead, Agent Orange in the yard. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. With all the major presidential candidates embracing the idea of a cap-and-trade system to deal with greenhouse gas emissions, it begins to look like a done deal. But as California prepares to implement its own cap-and-trade plan, the state is meeting opposition from some grassroots environmental activists. It's an echo of the debate that threatened to derail the Kyoto Agreement a decade ago. Back then, the Europeans argued that strict limits should be set and nobody no nations or businesses should be able to buy their way out. To the U.S., that was a deal-breaker. And in the end, trade was in. Now the carbon trade is a billion-dollar global business, even though the U.S. eventually backed out of Kyoto altogether. California's law also calls for a cap-and-trade system, and now some 20 environmental justice groups have issued a declaration against it. One charge, that the carbon trading and offset programs under Kyoto has actually led to more emissions. Jane Williams of the California Communities Against Toxics.
3: Those offset programs have gone to actually increase fossil fuel production. So you're going to extract methane in a coal seam in Africa while the coal is being mined to be shipped to Germany to be burned in a coal-fired power plant. I mean, you're having oppressive impacts in environmental justice communities in the global south, and you're not solving the structural problem of in order for us to maintain a reasonable climate on the planet, most of the carbon that's in the ground has to stay in the ground. We can't concoct schemes to move pollution around while we're still essentially extracting, you know, millions of tons of carbon from the ground and putting it in the air.
1: And while CO2 affects the world, the pollutants often released with it, such as sulfur dioxide and soot particles known as PM, have strong local impacts. Angela Johnson-Massaros of the California Environmental Rights Alliance is here to lay out her concerns. Uh, So, Angela, is it that eco-justice advocates worry trading schemes will make it easier for new power plants and refineries to be built in disadvantaged communities?
3: Well, it's clear that... Communities of color, low-income communities in California and around the United States host our fossil fuel infrastructure. We believe that there's a very clean policy approach that can allow us to address two really significant issues at the same time for mutual benefit. One is the climate problem, the overall climate issue. Carbon is global, but the fact is that its co-pollutants are local. So if you've got the refinery in your community You're not worried about the carbon in terms of its direct emissions. You're worried about the PM. But because you live on the planet, you are worried about the carbon. It's a two-part problem. And so if we were able to address the fossil fuel infrastructure, we would be able to address a large portion of the health impacts that communities of color are burdened by right now.
1: So what's one of the scenarios under cap and trade that most concerns you, Angela?
3: My concern is that we try to implement a trading program, something, frankly, that's never successfully been implemented everywhere. And then we start to spend five, six years working out the kinks, figuring out where are the verification issues, where are the reporting issues. You know, the argument is that you would have this cap, it would decline over time. That's not going to get us there in time. Most economists and many leading thinkers on this issue agree that a carbon fee would be the way to do it. So, in California, the fee that's collected by the government would have to go directly to reducing carbon emissions, paying for our new fossil fuel-free infrastructure.
1: You know that solution has been seen as politically impossible to pass legislatively. Uh, Angela, what makes you think it could be politically viable?
3: Well. What we're trying to do is raise the point that we've got to move beyond questions about whether or not it's politically viable. The fundamental question is, will it save the planet? And when we grapple with the fundamental question, that should outline what our solutions are. Um, So is it politically viable? I actually think that it is, and let me tell you why. I think it's politically viable because fundamentally people care about Climate change. They fundamentally care about protecting the planet and maintaining a livable Earth. And if we give people the clear choice, would you like to try this trading program? Which politically, for the people who are the lobbyists and um, and the people who are running the fossil fuel industry, we can try this trading program to see if it works out, or we can undertake policy solutions that are going to address the problem, I think that people will choose to address the problem. So we have to say to our decision makers, no, you need to listen to us, the people who live on the planet um, and are working to protect the planet and communities, and you need to put in place a system that's actually going to work.
1: Al Gore had his head handed to him in the summer of 1993 with a carbon tax, BTU tax.
3: Right. And and then he came out for trading, and then when he accepted the Nobel Prize, he was back at a tax.
1: So, easy to say out of office, hard to (laughs) say in office.
3: Uh, The people who are most vested in a trading program have a lot of influence on policy construction. We can't let that stop us from addressing climate.
1: Angela Johnson-Mazares is general counsel with the California Environmental Rights Alliance. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. And here's another tale of who gets to live on polluted soil. It's the story of three acres of land and the community surrounding it. It's a part of New Orleans known as Gurt Town. About 70 years ago, the Thompson Hayward Chemical Company bought the plot and set up a small operation mixing pesticides, often outdoors. Cane farmers bought the insecticides, and by the 1960s, plantations, exterminators, and even the federal government turned to Thompson Hayward for chemicals such as DDT, aldrin, and the one locals call leaf drop, Agent Orange. But in the late 1980s, when Louisiana found the plant was dumping solvents into sewers, state authorities shut it down. And ever since, homeowners in Town have hoped for a full cleanup. But as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, they're still waiting.
7: Last fall, Louisiana reached a milestone. It hauled away the last poisonous soil from the old Thompson-Hayward chemical site. Now cars on Earhart Boulevard speed past a stretch of fresh green grass.
6: It's gone very well. In fact, it's one of the success stories of DEQ in this administration.
7: Rodney Mallett is spokesman for the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality. Hurricane Katrina slowed down his department's cleanup plans, but didn't stop them
6: something that has been a uh, problem site and a concern for residents in New Orleans has been taken care of. That area right there is cleaned up to commercial use standards, and it hopefully will be put back in commerce by the city shortly.
7: But the pesticides drifted beyond the plant's perimeter to the yards and porches of the modest homes surrounding it. Johnny and Dorothy Leonard watched what went on there for 45 years.
2: From here, we'd see everything they'd done.
7: Sitting on the couch by the air conditioner, the Leonards vividly recall how forklift drivers held bags of dry pesticide high over huge outdoor mixing kettles.
2: Most of it was dry and it blew when they was mixing it. 50 pound bags or 100 pound bags. They cut it and just pour it out and quite naturally the wind is blowing and taking it, you know. That's when it get bad. That's when you couldn't sit on your porch out You couldn't be outside, you know, because then it's stringy. You know, you almost take your breath.
7: The Leonards raised six children in this home, Johnny Leonard worked at a Borden's Dairy for 20 years, and then as an Amtrak porter for 20 more. Dorothy remembers with a smile when they owned a restaurant that sold buckets of sausage on weekends. But the heavy dust from the plant was always there, coating cars, walls, and windowsills.
8: That,
9: that, uh, that chemical smelled so bad. If you had your
10: windows
2: let up, you could smell the chemicals. But when they was mixing that stuff, you wouldn't dare put a window fan on because you know what that will do, just bring all that stuff inside. You just had to cage yourself up when it was going on because you couldn't sit outside
8: and you couldn't put your fan on. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, and
1: that went on for years, years.
8: One of
7: their children, Robbie, now a 40-year-old drywaller, struggled with recurrent rashes and asthma.
9: So we'd be at the emergency room. They would clear it up. As soon as I get around here, that's when it mm-hmm. flared back up, and we had to go back. It was terrible. That's how it went for years. My whole childhood life, yes.
7: Nearly all the residents of Town are African American. No one can remember any survey of people's health here, but over the years, the pollution did attract the attention of some advocates. My name is Wilma
9: Subra. I'm a chemist, and I provide technical assistance to community groups dealing with environmental issues.
7: Wilma Subra created her own analytical chemistry lab in rural southern Louisiana in 1981. Her work is often controversial. Not long ago, Subra's husband watched as a vehicle cruised back and forth, then someone took a shot at the house. Subra pointed out the hollow in the brick beside the front door. So
9: I got a security person to come in. He said, put bulletproof glass on the windows. Move all the computer stuff so you work in the back half don't work here after dark.
7: When Hurricane Katrina struck, Subra had already taken samples outside the Thompson-Hayward site. Worried that the floodwaters would spread the contamination, she crossed police lines to get back to New Orleans. I was out doing samples
9: of that sediment sludge then EPA would come back and do additional sampling where I found the hot spots. If I hadn't been out there doing that kind of work, and if I wouldn't have had that data and then given that data to the community and then gone to the agency and said, look what I found, no one would have ever sampled in that area.
7: The EPA did follow up, testing dirt at nine sites in the neighborhood, including one a few steps from the Leonards' home. Subra photocopies the results she keeps in a file cabinet. Now, as you
9: see, there is off-site contamination based on EPA's data, and it extends over a block in each direction from the site. Chloridane exceeded the limit by 2.4 times. Now, chloridane has been banned from use in the United States. It's very persistent, very long-lasting. The DDT chemicals and their metabolites were 38 times over the acceptable limit at this one location and then dieldrin was almost 40 times the limit. The issue here is very toxic, very persistent pesticides very readily available for the community to come in contact with.
7: Living on Earth obtained the electronic records for 24,000 post-Katrina soil samples taken by EPA in Louisiana. Of the thousands of tests, the sample taken closest to the Leonard's front porch showed the very highest concentrations of several dangerous pesticides, the termite killer chlordane, DDT, dieldrin, endrin, and endosulfan. The EPA agrees the test results are over the threshold of concern, but it doesn't believe the neighborhood needs a cleanup. John Rauscher, the EPA toxicologist who assessed the risk, says the levels in Girtown would cause fewer than one extra cancer in 10,000 people.
4: The
3: pathway we looked at was a person living near those soils and routinely contacting those soils, including if a child were to contact those soils and do so on a routine basis. We look at a child inadvertently ingesting soil or eating soil. Children have fairly high soil ingestion rates from handling toys and putting their hands in their mouth. At this point, EPA does not have any evidence that would lead us to do any
11: additional work.
7: That is, not unless the state of Louisiana requested it. But Rodney Mallet of the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality says the state is not going to ask.
6: People say there's pesticides there. Well, there's pesticides there. But there's pesticides everywhere, and if you go to the up-end neighborhoods, higher-end neighborhoods, you're going to find a lot more pesticides because they're the ones who have the disposable income to take care of the yards, and they're big into taking care of the yards.
7: But common lawn treatments like Roundup aren't nearly as dangerous as the compounds found in Girttown, such as DDT and Chlordane. These insect killers build up in the body and have been banned for decades. Whatever Mallett says, records show they're not widespread in New Orleans. DDT wasn't found in most of the soils where experts looked for it after Katrina. In other words, Girttown stands out. Mallet insists the soils pose no risk.
6: The pesticides that were found were typical background levels. That if it was going to be a health risk to someone, you would have to eat a liter of soil a day for 200 plus days for it to become a problem.
7: Yet, in fact, eating that liter of soil near the Leonard's home would put someone hundreds of times over the EPA level of concern for Chlordane alone. Living on Earth showed the Town soil test results to three California toxicologists. Michael Anderson assesses ecotoxicological risk for the state. He pointed out other ways people could be exposed besides eating soil.
11: If you add into that homegrown produce, if a person was to have a backyard garden, or uh, if you add in the pathway of the ingestion of breast milk for an infant, the risks rise dramatically. The risks now go up almost... Uh, Two orders of magnitude.
7: Which means if the site were in California, the government response would likely be different.
11: If this was the information that we were given and we were confident in the data, we would uh, recommend a remedial action.
7: You would recommend a remedial
11: action? Oh, yeah.
7: The other toxicologist agreed. Another toxicologist was even more blunt. Professor Marcus Issard used to teach in New Orleans and once gathered samples in Town. now he teaches toxicology at the University of Missouri Kansas City
2: uh, there should be a large outcry this type of chemical exposure is unacceptable period. This could never happen in anybody else's neighborhood. This could not happen on the north shore of the New Orleans residential area. This would never happen. And we're talking about a neighborhood where it seems that uh, those who are in power have just abandoned.
7: At home in her living room, Dorothy Leonard says over the years, men have come several times and said her neighborhood would be cleaned up or that residents would be bought out, but nothing's come of it.
0: And they should have been did that. And they'll know that place over there was making the people sick around here. We couldn't even sit on our porch. With the doors closed, we could smell it in our house. With our windows, we could be driving in our car. Our windows could be completely up. We could smell it all the way in our car. They didn't care. Whether
7: they care or not, what's in the soil will stay there Experts say the pesticides don't dissolve in water, and they're bound to the soil. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Low
1: Pesticides bound to the soil. Our land, our home ground, is soil. And soil, that humble, vital basis of all the greenery we depend on, is the subject of this excerpt from the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. Nature writer Barry Lopez and fellow author Deborah Guartney gathered lyrical descriptions of landscape features in this book. Today, Barry Lopez explains soil.
11: Soil. Erosion, volcanic eruption, earthquakes, floods, tectonic grinding, Landslides and other natural forces act continuously on the Earth's crustal rock, creating various types of debris, gravel deposits, mudflats in the tidal estuaries of creeks, cobble terraces, and beaches of black lava sand. When chemical agents, such as phosphorus and nitrogen, infuse this debris, and biological entities, including microbes and earthworms, work material into it organic enough to support plants, it becomes soil. A soil that is chemically or organically exhausted, that's been pulverized or become deeply parched, that has been invaded by decomposing rock, or that's been fouled by sewage or industrial pollution to the point where it no longer can support plant life, is called dirt. That's writer Barry
1: Lopez, who together with Deborah Gwartney created Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. Coming up, how your food can be your medicine. Keep listening to Living on Earth.
4: Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International.
1: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The obesity epidemic is spreading around the world, According to a U.N. report, more than 300 million people are obese, and closer to home, about 60% of Americans are overweight. Overeating and chronic diseases associated with obesity are literally killing us. But as Living on Earth, Helen Palmer recently learned, food could also be our salvation. Helen joins me now in the studio. Hi, Helen. Seems to me that food is a problem. How can it also help?
8: Well, Steve, you know Hippocrates, that founding father of modern medicine?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, First, do no harm,
8: he said. Right. But he also said, let food be your medicine and medicine be your food. Now, there's a, a number of researchers out there who are taking Hippocrates at his word and updating that with a healthy dose of modern technology. Take something called Farming, that's farming with a pH.
1: In pH, you mean as in pharmacy?
8: Exactly. Now, that's where researchers sort of engineer plants to grow pharmaceutical drugs. It's absolutely fascinating, Steve. I'll get to that in a bit, but first, let me tell you about the work Henry Thompson's doing. He's a cancer researcher at Colorado State University. Thompson says that underlying all chronic disease, you know, di- diabetes, heart disease, cancer, are similar metabolic disruptions. Uh,
1: metabolic, you mean the way we metabolize or use our food, you're talking about?
8: Sort of. Um, what he says is that in diseases like this, at the cellular level, glucose, sugar, you know, is being handled differently. And that causes inflammation, and that inflammation causes damage. So Dr. Thompson's prescription... Is veggies to prevent damage in the first place?
0: Plant foods, because of the way plants have developed over time, have a rich source of chemicals that can positively impact uh, those same cellular processes that, when dysregulated, lead to these chronic diseases.
8: So basically, you're saying if we eat the right foods, we might not get sick in the first place?
1: That's exactly right. Sort of a physician, farmer, and chef, heal thyself?
8: Right. uh, what Professor Thompson says is that plants have had to fight off microbes and pests and environmental stresses. They've developed powerful chemicals to help. Those same chemicals actually protect within the human cells.
1: So, uh what kinds of plant foods has he been studying?
8: Well, he's been looking at the staples, you know, crops like rice, wheat, corn, potatoes. And Thompson's done a lot of research testing various types of dry beans on mice to see which varieties protect them best against cancer.
0: This is the common bean. So an, an example would be black bean or a kidney bean. Uh, they differ in their health promoting activity relative to cancer turns out that so far we found that dry beans from the Andean center of domestication seem to have more health benefit but all beans are good so what's the what's the advice again half a cup a day every day beans beans good for the heart
8: well yes indeed but by the way those andean varieties include kidney and black and cranberry beans. Thompson says he's found that the variety matters with all food groups. So, say, Red Delicious or Granny Smith apples or Peruvian Purple or Yukon Gold potatoes can have different beneficial effects. Right now, though, there isn't enough hard evidence to say you should ha- eat one variety rather than another. He says eat lots of varieties and many different food groups.
1: Uh-oh. So this means my grandmother was right. Eat my cabbages and broccoli and the squashes and tomatoes. and
8: Yeah, and don't forget the rutabagas and the onions and the garlic.
1: Okay. So, well, Helen, tell me now about the farming with a pH. Uh, Now, it seems to me that growing drugs uh, isn't particularly new. Uh, There are lots of familiar uh, therapies that come from plants. What, uh, the heart drug digitalis from Foxglove or or aspirin from willow trees?
8: That's right. but, But those were discovered accidentally. The new sort of pH farming is about creating designer plants that can produce drugs with specific effects. Now, biotech companies are doing something like this, but it's incredibly costly, hundreds of millions of dollars. And they grow what are called biologics. They're vaccines, you know, growth hormone, cancer drugs. They grow them in cell cultures or fermentation vats. The new pharmaceutical farming will actually grow plants in greenhouses.
1: And this is going on right now? Drugs are being grown?
8: Well, they're being grown, but the technology is still only experimental. They're not approved. I, I did speak to one researcher, though, Charles Anson at Arizona State University. He says he'll have a plant-grown vaccine in human clinical trials this year. He started with potato plants and now he's working on tobacco.
1: Wait a second, a drug that can make you healthy from tobacco? Yeah,
8: it's ironic, eh? Uh, Right now, drug companies add a little bit of viral DNA to yeast to make some of these advanced vaccines. So Arnston
10: figured, well, let's use plants. If Merck could make it work with yeast, I just said, well, let's put the same gene into a plant, like tobacco or tomatoes or potatoes. And the same gene works the same way. What we then did was just took some of the plant tissue and fed it to mice. And lo and behold, the virus-like particles stimulated the immune system because we have immune effector sites in our gut. When those effector sites saw the virus-like particle, bam, we click on our immune system. And then we got approval from the FDA to take this into humans. And sure enough, the same thing works in people. You eat a raw potato, for example, that's got the genes for the virus-like particle of hepatitis B, and the human volunteers got a wonderful immune response, which is what we want for a good vaccine.
1: Yeah, but Helen, uh, come on, eating a raw potato? I mean, how many of these things would I have to eat to get vaccinated?
8: Well, Dr. Arnston discovered you'd have to eat a potato the size of a tennis ball to get a high enough dose. But don't worry, he's now working on a simpler scheme. He takes a tiny bit of DNA with the human disease and puts that into a tobacco virus. And then he puts that virus into a tobacco plant and it grows like crazy. And there it is, a human vaccine.
1: And I have to smoke it.
8: (laughs) No, no, it reharvested harvested and made into a shot. As I say, it's it's still experimental, but it works. Dr Anson's transferring this technology to India so they can make a low-cost hepatitis B shot. And he's using the same approach to make a vaccine for the Norwalk virus.
10: It's the cruise ship diarrhoea it's closed hospitals in the US and and the cost of decontaminating, say, a hospital ward is incredible. So there's a there's a need for a vaccine. Neuroviruses do not replicate in anyone but humans. And so we found that by taking a gene out of the neuroviruses we can put it in plants. And we're now doing the experiments and I hope in this case to be in human clinical trials yet in two thousand eight with our first tobacco-derived neural virus vaccine to t- test its efficacy.
1: You know, this all sounds really great, Helen, but there's got to be a catch. I can hear a but coming along.
8: Oh, yes, Steve, there's a but. Uh, it's not about what Dr. Arnston's doing, though. First of all, he's not using a food crop, you know, anything we eat. And then he's not genetically modifying a plant. He's uh, working in secure greenhouses. So those are all protective things. But And here's the but. There are concerns about other kinds of pharmaceutical farming where scientists might manipulate genes, say in corn or rice or some other food crop. That really worries Margaret Mellon of the Union of Concerned Scientists. So there's a lot of concern that the genes that code
7: for the drugs are going to make their way into your food. And I think consumers are concerned about that. Food companies are very concerned about it. But they are the ones are going to be left holding the bag if breakfast cereal turns up to have drugs in it that that
8: no one wanted.
1: Yeah, I'd say. I certainly wouldn't want a heart drug in my yogurt and granola in the morning.
8: Well, exactly. I, I wonder if you remember the Starlink corn. That was genetically modified corn, but that was only approved for animals, and it ended up in tortillas. Well, that cost farmers and food companies billions.
1: So what about rules for this stuff? I mean, especially after that fiasco.
8: Well, the Union of Concerned Scientists says there should be a total ban on genetically engineering any food plant to produce drugs. And actually, Steve, the USDA is expected to make rules for pharmaceutical farming by the end of this year.
1: Well, we'll keep track of that then, won't we? Indeed. Living on Earth Helen Palmer. Thanks so much.
8: Anytime, Steve.
1: National Geographic magazine named Helen Thayer one of the great explorers of the 20th century. Mrs. Thayer has trekked to the North Pole and Antarctica. She's traveled across Death Valley and the Sahara. And in 2001, Helen Thayer and her husband Bill, along with a pair of camels they called Tom and Jerry, walked across the Gobi Desert, 1,600 miles of blazing heat where even camels can die of thirst. They lived to tell the tale, in Helen's new book titled Appropriately Enough Walking the Gobi. She told her story to Living on Earth's
2: Bruce Gellerman. Helen, what does Gobi mean?
12: It means stony desert. There are a few variations and interpretations, but basically it means stony desert because there's only 3% of the Gobi Desert is sand. Most of it is stony.
2: When I think of Mongolia, I think of Genghis Khan, nomads, misery, and some of the most severe temperatures and the severe temperature fluctuations in the world.
12: Well, it, uh, the winter time uh, temperatures can be minus forty degrees quite easily. Uh, snow and ice, um, blinding snowstorms, winds sweeping down from Siberia, and in fact, in two winters uh, previous to our journey across the Gobi, the Mongolians lost around 3 million of their animals to the previous two winters, uh, terrible storms. But then in the summertime, temperatures, as we found, can be easily over 120 degrees, and we had a high temperature of 126 degrees Fahrenheit. That's in the shade, but there was no shade.
2: It's kind of interesting that in such a barren place and a desolate place. You are constantly managing to meet people.
12: Yes, we would. Uh, sometimes we went for stretches where we saw no one, just the snakes and the, and the gecko lizards were our companions, but, and the scorpions, of course. We must not forget those, those scorpions. But um, we would meet people, and these would be people who are moving uh, from one place to another, looking for food and water for their animals and themselves.
2: You had a GPS device, which uh, sometimes got you lost, and satellite maps, and you asked for directions once on your journey from the nomads and the response was enough to make uh, most people stop in their tracks
12: well they told us of course uh, we knew that if we crossed the border into china we very likely would be shot because um, we would be accused as uh, of being drug smugglers so we knew there was uh, a danger of uh, certainly being shot but of course we decided that you know we we had permission to be very close to the border so with nav- navigation and so forth, we figured that we wouldn't, uh, we wouldn't be crossing the border. certainly wasn't our intention. We were forced, forced over by a series of canyons at one point, and uh, that, that wasn't a very good situation. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, the border soldiers do arrest you, and they, they do threaten to shoot you as smugglers.
12: That's right, they do. It was a close call, but... In the end, we were able to convince them. Of, of course, they could see that we weren't smugglers. We had nothing on us that would even hint at that. And, uh, but of course, the interrogation was just went on and on and on. It was ridiculous. And we finally got through because we, of our of our age.
2: But he asked you that very good question: Why are you walking across the desert?
12: Oh, that just about floored him. He couldn't believe anybody would walk across the desert. In fact, nobody, anybody that we met in the desert, they had. No concept of the idea of anybody walking all the way across the desert because the nomads will, well, during the winter they stay in one place, a fairly sheltered place, but then in the springtime and summer and fall they'll move according to the pasture and the uh, food and water and uh, they follow their ancestral routes. Mongolia is a country with no fences and people basically don't own land, but they're constantly searching for food and water in the summer.
2: The nomads live in something, what they're called, ger, ger's?
12: Ger. ger. It's a ger. It's pronounced ger. It's like a Russian yurt, but in Mongolian it's called ger. The door always faces south to avoid the um, Siberian winds, and the uh, visitors are escorted to the left-hand side, which is the male side of the ger, and um, on that side you're under the, the uh, protection of the sky god Tenger, And the women of the family go to the right, and they're under the protection of the sun god. And then the back of the gear is very sacred. This is where the uh, elders are allowed to go.
2: And heaven forbid if you hit your head on the the doorway.
12: Yeah, if you do, if you step on on the threshold, it's considered the same as stepping on your host's neck. And you mustn't point your feet at the fire because you might upset the spirit of the fire, and he might not cook the next meal.
2: Now, you almost didn't get to make this trip.
12: Yes, it was very serious. Uh, a person rear-ended us on a bridge. We were stopped in traffic, and uh, this person rear-ended us at very high speed, and uh, I had very serious injuries to my lower body, um, hips, low back, legs, and I was even told that I might not walk again, certainly not I uh, walk long distances again, but um I knew that that wasn't so, uh, so I just searched for the right person, and finally, I found the person to put me back together again and i'm I'm possibly better than ever because I worked so hard through rehab to strengthen my legs and um it's as though like the accident didn't happen now
2: but on your trek across the Gobi, you were hurting.
12: Yes, I was. It it was terribly painful. I, um, I wasn't recovered at that time from the accident, but we had a choice. We could have postponed it. But then we didn't know if politics would interfere with our future plans because the the uh, Mongolian borders had been closed due to communism for the last 70 years. And with these countries, we've learned from bitter experience that countries' borders can close down overnight. And so it was wide open and we had our permits and we were good to go. And I said to Bill, well, if I don't give it my best try, I will never know if I could make it. And I'd rather give it my best try, even if it means that I can't get it all the way across cross rather than stay at home and always question myself so we set out and we were successful
2: do you and bill talk much when you're on these tracks
12: Oh yes, we chat, we sing songs together. You wouldn't want to hear us. It's just as well we go out there to sing, because no one would want to sing. We're just awful. And when things are tough, we uh, we bolster each other and make sure we're both staying optimistic. And we support each other. Oh, sometimes Bill start tell jokes. We might have heard them twenty times already, but it's still funny out there. And then sometimes we see the funny side of what we're doing and laugh at ourselves. So we uh, we manage to. uh, get across the desert in good spirits, and neither one of us sits down on anything.
2: What might be a, a Helen and Bill Thayer song?
12: Well, we start off by Onward Christian Soldiers. That seems to be a good marching song, and off we go. And, and that sort of gets us going, and we like that one. That's sort of one of our favorite hymns, actually.
2: The book is called Walking the Gobi. The author is Helen Thayer. Helen, thank you so very much.
12: Thank you.
1: Explorer Helen Thayer speaking with Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman. On the next Living on Earth...
7: Poverty has a way of crawling under the skin and getting into the brain. We know one of the big mechanisms whereby this happens is through stress. That high levels of stress for a child, in a sense, produces a toxic environment within that child's body for healthy brain development and healthy cognitive
1: skills. How Poverty Can Last a Lifetime, next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week in the desert, the Sonoran Chihuahuan Desert in New Mexico, with the sounds of the wind and the Chihuahuan raven. Ruth Happel made this recording for the WildSanctuary.com CD, Desert Solitudes. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler, Sarah Hawkins, and Mitra Taj. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rosano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
4: PAX World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com.
11: PRI, Public Radio International.